Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thank you for joining us once again this week. Yeah, thank you for coming back. I think, um, what's this, episode 13, 12 or 13? So we're heading towards our mid-season break is the point I'm trying to make. Uh, so I think in a couple of weeks' time, uh, you won't have us in your ears, but we will let you know. But I think you've probably got another couple of episodes before them. So why are you even mentioning it then, Mark? I like to give them notice. Someone said they cancelled going to their sister's wedding so they could listen to Crime Wave the other Friday night. That's how seriously some people take it. Well, there we go. And some other people who take this very seriously that we want to say thank you to, nice little segue, um, is our new Patreon supporters. So thank you very much to Tim Lane for your support and to Mind Matters. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, thank you uh, for signing up. If you would like to sign up and support us on Patreon, we've got loads of stuff going on over there. We've got a Patreon book club. We're meeting on the 21st of April to discuss that. Uh, We do that once a quarter. We also have a fortnightly podcast that's exclusive to Patreon. It's called Crime Wave, and we talk about different true crime stories making the news uh, that week so uh, there's all sorts of other stuff as well Bethan does a blog post every single month the blog posts are absolutely amazing really in depth and it gives you a real insight into what we do what interests us I say us it's it's Bethan really but um, fascinating blog post so all of that is there as well as uh, a back catalogue now of 35 monthly bonus episodes and we, we carry on with those there's one released on the last Friday of every month Oh, thank you for saying that they're good. I'm glad that you're I love them. your blog posts. Absolutely love them. Thank you. Uh, they, I learned something from them as well. But if you want to sign up, just head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And then the other thing really quickly to mention before we get started with this week's episode is that this summer sees the return of CrimeCon. So I loved it last year. I cannot wait to bring Mark along with me as well. It is the 11th and 12th of June 2022, so this summer in London. So if you're interested, you can use our code, which is the word RED, to get a discount on your ticket price and a Seeing Red goodie bag of merchandise. Just head to crimecon.co.uk for information about what's on, what's going to be there, who's going to be there. And also for the ticket options, there's the VIP option, a standard price, or there's also a limited option this year, which is new. And there's also the option to spread your costs if you want to. Um, There's also specific tiers of ticket if you are, for example, a student or if you've got blue light discounts and stuff like that. So head to crimecon.co.uk for information about what will be on and see me and Mark there on Saturday the 11th of June. We are so excited to be there and I think it's great that you can split your payments into three kind of easy pays so uh, so yeah do as Bethan said do head to the website check out the content there's going to be over 50 hours of content over the course of that weekend and it's a really really special event. This week, I have two cases to share with you. So the first is the main bulk of the episode. It was suggested to us by listener Sarah Louise. And the second is a short anecdotal case, which is a total wild card that I hope will lighten the mood a little bit after the savagery of the first case. Lauren West suggested I tell you about it, Mark, and all will be revealed. I'm really worried about this because Bethan sent something through before we hit record and said, don't look at it. I need you to um, be surprised. And I'm, I'm kind of a bit worried about what it is, so... I'll find out soon enough, I guess. You will. And I do think we're going to need something a little bit lighthearted at the end of today's main case, because it is a really brutal one. With the second case then, the lighthearted one, we're not talking about putting lipstick on a pig again, are we? 
It was a pony. Oh, was it a pony? <laughs> Why did I think it was a pig? I'm thinking about how... I think that's how I used to think they... Uh, when stuff was tested on animals, which we don't really do now, uh, apart from like drugs and stuff, but when they used to test makeup on animals, I used to kind of envisage that they'd put like lipstick on a pig and that's how they tested whether it was safe or not. Maybe they did do that. I feel like it's more like they inject stuff into their skin. I think it's really savage. I don't think it's. I don't think it's as nice as putting a bit of lipstick on a pig. <laughs> oh fucking hell! Yeah, this is a whole other ball game. So we're going to head to South Shields, a coastal town in South Tyneside, Tyne and Weir, and the year twenty twenty. So it's a very recent case. This one. South Shields is situated at the south of the River Tyne and it is the fourth largest settlement in Tyne and Weir and it sits between the border of Newcastle and the border of Sunderland. As well as being the oldest and largest town in South Tyneside, South Shields is also one of the region's most popular seaside resorts, described as having stunning coastline with sandy beaches, miles of soaring cliffs and stunning bays. This isn't a part of the UK I know very well, so I had a little Google, obviously, and some of the celebrities today from this area include Perry and Jade from Little Mix, Ridley Scott, the film director, author Catherine Cookson, and two of my favourite comedians, Sarah Millican and Chris Ramsey. And there were lots of other big names, but I like to choose people that I like and know. I don't think I knew any of those came even from remotely around there, apart from Sarah Millican, but it's a lovely accent, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, it's nice, isn't it? It's like reassuring. Really warm, friendly accent. Yeah. Yeah. Now, not so warm and friendly. Locals describe Victoria Road in South Shields, where this week's case happened, as the dark side of South Shields. So someone I spoke to described it as an area that you wouldn't be pleased to see on your route if you were a takeaway delivery driver. People deal or take drugs out on the street. The local shop is often robbed. And I'm sure we can all think of the part of town that we live, which is like that. I'm sure you can think of someone near to you. I certainly can't. Next door to yours, your house, your house (laughs) is the rough one. Yeah, I don't live next door to that crack addict anymore. So uh, I've definitely lived in places where it's been been a bit, bit hairy like that for sure. Yeah. Ross Miller was 23. He lived in a flat in Victoria Road and neighbours have said the place was often noisy. Neighbours were used to swearing, shouting and banging through the days and nights. It wasn't unusual to hear what sounded like arguments. And people said that they found Miller to be troublesome, troubled, irritating and aggressive and always drunk. Sounds familiar. (laughs) I knew you were going to say something. (laughs) I couldn't help it. I was talking about myself, Beth, and not you for once. Of course you were, for once. Yeah. (laughs) Unlike you, he was known for being quite a scary bloke, so he was always swearing and shouting at people that came into his flat. He'd chase people down the stairs. He would threaten people. He was going to kill them. One neighbour described the chaos that she lived near to by saying, it was like every other night he would say he was going to stab them. I could see from the kitchen window he'd have his top off and he'd be in people's faces saying, I'm going to fucking kill you. He was saying he was going to kill them. He was saying he was going to knock them out. The police were constantly being called to the block of flats to deal with disturbances that Miller caused. And a woman who lived there with her young baby had to move really soon after moving in because she just couldn't cope with it. Miller was known for being abusive to pretty much anyone he came into contact with. Charming. 
we, we've talked a little bit about this before, haven't we? These troublesome neighbours and just that awful feeling. Because in the, the one place that you should feel safe and secure and relaxed is in your own home. And of course, there's lots of reasons why you might not feel that. But one of those reasons can be difficult neighbours. And I, I've never really been in that situation apart from that brief time of that crack addict. But um, I can't really imagine what it must be like to live next door or opposite someone that is this disruptive and abusive you would never feel comfortable safe or relaxed in your own home and and that's awful because you know you're going out to work and that that can be stressful and you need a safe haven to come back to and yeah I really feel for anybody in that situation. Ross Miller had a brother called Gary who was 26 and the pair apparently had a really tough upbringing but Gary was a really nice guy he was well known in the local community as a sweet soul who wouldn't hurt a fly So the brothers hadn't had the best upbringing. According to people who went to school with them, they arrived at school in dirty clothes and they lived on rough estates. And the brothers both liked to drink and smoke weed. But Ross Miller became violent and obsessed with weapons. Gary didn't. Gary was seen as the class clown. He got into trouble at school for being the funny kid, but everyone would laugh and he enjoyed the attention, even if it got him into trouble. He was described as a lovely lad and people just tended to get along with him. And I found it really interesting, like how different two brothers could be. Yeah, when they've had, when they're of the same gene pool and they've had the same upbringing, you would think those two factors, so genetics and the social situation, their circumstances would would create two peas in a pod. So that is really interesting why it wasn't the case for Gary when it was for his brother. Yeah. Um, Gary suffered with epilepsy and he was diagnosed with it after leaving school. Um, So someone who lived near to Gary said of Ross Miller, I didn't like Ross because he was a bully, but they liked Gary. So yeah. Ross Miller had reunited with his old friend, 24-year-old Brandon Lee, a few weeks earlier when playing Call of Duty online, and they met up occasionally. So Brandon was often visiting Miller's flat. It wasn't out of the ordinary when, on the 11th of May 2020, Miller invited Brandon round to catch up. Older brother Gary also came round to the flat to join them for their evening of drinking. Brandon and Miller drove to a local garage shortly after 10.15 on May the 11th for alcohol and cigarettes and then they returned to the flat where this usual noise started up again. A downstairs neighbour was used to this but on the night in question he had a woman round and she was not able to ignore it. Because she was really bothered by the, in quote, arguing, swearing and banging at around 2am and frightened of the noise, she actually said she wanted to go home so the neighbour called her a taxi and walked her out And on his way back to his flat, he said he saw Ross Miller. He thought he saw blood, but he kind of hurried back inside, doubting that it would have been. And I guess if you knew Ross Miller and you knew his reputation and you were used to his violent behaviour, you probably wouldn't want to get his attention by looking at him for very long, would you? And and also, I would just think if I saw Ross Miller covered in blood, I would probably just think, oh, he's just probably put his fist through a window because he's a dickhead and that's the sort of thing he would do. So I wouldn't Mm -hmm. think he's maybe harmed someone other than himself. Exactly. And this guy went back into his flat and headed to the bathroom. But it wasn't long before his night was interrupted again, this time by a loud banging at his front door. And as he got close to the door, he heard someone say either call the police or call an ambulance or perhaps both. It was all very garbled. And he said he looked through the spy hole because he was a bit confused and a bit nervous. He saw Ross Miller just absolutely covered in blood. He thought he was injured, so he rushed out. 
Miller was dripping in blood and there was blood all over the hallway. So this neighbour rushed back inside and phoned 999. And he later said of Ross Miller, he was covered in blood and I thought he had a knife, but I wasn't sure. He was holding something. The officers who attended the flats in the early hours of the 12th of May noticed blood at the entrance of the building and they wore body cams which recorded the scene as it unfolded before them. They entered the flat cautiously, an officer leading with a taser, but there was no confrontation as expected. Miller was on a sofa, sat down, just still. The walls were covered in blood and there was music playing. Oh, you've painted a vivid scene. There's so much blood mm-hmm. in this. It's making me feel queasy because I like nearly cut off half my thumb the other day and it was like a oh, bloodbath. Oh and, um, and even that, I was That's uh, struggling. That's enough, isn't it? Yeah, I was mm-hmm. struggling. And this... Uh, when, when walls are covered in blood, that's just the beginning of it. It's that's yeah, vile. We've been there before. Be We've been there before, and we're here again. It's it's horrible. Yeah. So the officers surveyed the room in front of them. Miller sat on the sofa, staring straight ahead, covered in blood with injuries to his hands. And Brandon Lee, well, he was bent over on the floor with no top on, covered in blood, and he had very obvious puncture wounds to his back. Miller was ordered to put his hands in the air, which he did, and he apparently grinned as he declared it was self-defence. He said he tried to give us injuries. Paramedics pronounced Brandon dead at the scene from injuries consistent with a bladed article. And inside the flat, officers found a number of knives, including a machete, which was used by Miller to inflict fatal blows. So just what had happened that night in the flat and where was Gary? Well... Gary had been at the flat that night with the other men, but he'd had a bath. He'd then had an epileptic fit and had been unconscious for a while. Miller had done some laundry for him because he didn't have a washing machine at home. Um, And then he just left and headed home because he felt rough. And he said that the pair were fine. There were no arguments, nothing untoward going on. The first he heard of the murder was the following morning. So Gary's girlfriend had heard that there was a body found at Ross Miller's flat and she thought it might be Gary, so she'd gone to Gary's house to go check if he was all right. Also, I'm I'm concerned that this guy's taken a bath when he's got epilepsy. So he has a bath, gets out of the bath, then has a fit. He could have had a fit in the bath, hit his head and mm-hmm. become unconscious and drowned. I'm not even sure if he had a fit while he was in the bath or after. It wasn't clear, but yeah. Not, really not scary a good combination, though. So he just headed home. Or did he? Yeah, he did. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> he he no actually twist. just did, yeah. There's no, no twist, no trickery. But he did. He just went home. And I just, yeah. I do sometimes think, like, what a twist of fate. Because what if he'd been at the flats in, instead? Like, what if he hadn't have gone home? I wonder whether things could have been different for him or for Brandon. I, I was going to say, yeah, it could have gone one of two ways. It could have been, it could he could have been a victim as well of his brother, yeah. of his brother's violence. Or he may have been able to placate, um, Ross, Ross Ross's yeah. behaviour and, and stop uh, his friend from being murdered, yeah. Who knows? So Gary's girlfriend said um, of what she then went round to Gary's house and w- what happened, she said the following. I said, what's going on? Gary was confused and was not sure what I was talking about. I told him that his other brother had rung me and said there was a body found at Ross's flat. Gary was still very confused. He didn't know what had happened. He just said he went to Ross's, they'd been drinking and stuff. He remembered drinking neat whiskey. He had a bath there. Ross washed his clothes because he doesn't have a washing machine at home. And she said that the only thing Gary could think about was that he'd lost his trainer 
at Miller's flat and he actually did later try and get access to his brother's flat to retrieve the missing shoe but obviously he wasn't allowed past the police cordon. It was a crime scene so you can see just how confused this guy is. He's not even focusing on the fact that there's been a murder. He's kind of gone well I need my shoes back like it's really bizarre like this poor guy is just so confused by everything that's happened and also I think that shows if he'd lost his trainer in that flat the night before after he'd had this fit you almost get the impression that he was just desperate to get out of the flat like you say feeling really rough clearly just wanted to get home couldn't find his his other trainer and just is not really thinking straight and just going yeah Yeah, and still not well still maybe suffering the next morning Mm -hmm. particularly if they'd been drinking as well if he'd been drinking with them yeah so in the flat some sort of argument had broken out and Brandon was totally defenseless. He suffered in total more than a hundred injuries, including sixty separate knife wounds, and the scene showed how Miller had continued to stab and slash at him as he desperately tried to move away and shield himself from what was described as the relentless onslaught. That always concerns me as well because it's a six sixty individual knife wounds it sounds like a lot, but that can be inflicted really quickly in in certainly well under a minute and sometimes the first couple of stab wounds will do the damage and and render that victim unconscious so they don't really know what's happening or they may die pretty much straight away but with this because you're talking about him trying to shield himself and they could clearly see that from the wounds defensive wounds I'm guessing he would have been very much aware of what was happening and and very much suffering and and feeling every every wound that was inflicted upon him which, which is just horrible to think about isn't it? It is, and it's horrific reading, so I do apologise in advance. This is kind of like a simplified version of the post-mortem findings, but even a simplified version is just horrible. So a post-mortem examination determined that Mr Lee had died due to stab wounds to the neck and chest. The principal findings were an enormous number of incised wounds on the head, trunk and the upper limbs, including a stab wound traversing the neck, i.e. in one and side and out the other, damaging the left carotid artery and a stab wound passing from back to front through the trunk, traversing the right lung and the right atrium of the heart. This second wound entered the upper back and went through the thick bone just to the right of the spine and then through the left lung, the heart, some ribs and out of the other side and it would have required a considerable force. The very large majority of the other injuries were also sharp so this means they were caused by a weapon or weapons with a sharp edge or edges and some were in a stabbing action, many in a chopping action. There are many other injuries over the upper arms and upper body. So the attack had been so savage that Miller himself had also been injured. He suffered severed tendons and ligaments in both his hands. So that that's, I mean, to say that's a frenzied attack is a huge understatement, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. just somebody going absolutely mental with a knife or several knives. And I know you mentioned a machete earlier. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about knives that are penetrating thick, strong bone. That is serious shit, isn't it? And the fact it's that, horrible, isn't that, it? that, like you say, Ross has actually damaged the tendons in both of his hands and the ligaments, that just shows how frenzied it is. There's just knives everywhere. Ross Miller denied murder, claiming he had no memory of what happened, but both he and Gary were arrested for the murder and faced trial. Locals were shocked that Gary was on trial too, and one person I spoke to said, From the start, I was adamant he was innocent. He's such a lovely lad and honestly was never malicious with anyone. I completely felt just sorry for him. 
And that seems to be kind of the general consensus in the local community. And I'm I'm shocked that Gary was arrested and put on trial for this. I know you but said the community the were. He yeah, was at but the sure, flat that night. Surely they would be able to... He was on to... the CCTV going back to the flat and that's what yeah, they had. Yeah, fair you enough. Know. But wouldn't you it's, think they... It's difficult. He said he'd gone home, but did he have any evidence that he was at home? Who's his alibi? It's it's such a tough one, isn't it? And they could have also... They, they could have um, sort of done a hot, whole kind of DNA swab all over him the next day, but he might have showered and all of that. So, and got rid of his clothes by then if they're thinking he was guilty of this. Yeah, but it did feel like they just didn't really have any evidence for him apart from that he was there. So it was really, really sad that he was put on trial. Yeah. So in court, the jury heard about the night from the beginning where the three of them were drinking and taking drugs. They saw CCTV footage of Brandon and Miller driving to a garage shortly after 11.15, shortly after 10.15, sorry, on the 11th for alcohol and cigarettes before returning to the flat. And they were told of how a row had broken out between Brandon and Ross Miller, which resulted in this fatal attack. Miller was described in court as loud, boisterous and confrontational with an aggressive demeanour. And someone who had a fascination with knives, including machetes. The judge said Miller knew he was prone to becoming angry and confrontational after drinking and taking drugs, which he did do that night. Ross Miller was found guilty of Brandon's murder and Gary Miller was found not guilty of murder and cleared of all charges. Oh, I'm pleased to know. I'm really pleased to hear that, mm-hmm. yeah. I approve. Ross Miller, good, I'm glad you approve. The judge <laughs> will be pleased to hear that you approve again, of Again, once again, following of last course. week as well, yeah. They always care what we think. Exactly. Ross Miller was sentenced to life with a minimum term of 19 years. Fuck off, Bethan. 19 years. That's ridiculous. That's minimum, though. And that is only, obviously, if he passes a parole board. That is really low, though, as a minimum term. For such a frenzied killing. And we don't know the the full uh, intricacies of this. And there there may have been some kind of mitigating factors around his, his health, perhaps. But... I'm not. I'm, I know he's not the one with epilepsy, but his mental health, perhaps. So I don't know. Not happy with that. Judge Paul Sloan QC told him, "Mr. Lee must have been in considerable pain and fear during the attack, which lasted for some time." And he said, "It is clear from the scientific evidence you continued to rain blows upon Brandon Lee as he moved anti-clockwise around the living room to avoid the relentless onslaught. Sometimes on his feet, sometimes down on the floor or on furniture, sometimes with his back to you." He was utterly defenceless against the machete, able to do no more than raise his hands to fend off blows and thereby sustaining defensive injuries to his upper limbs. Eventually, he collapsed on the sofa, bleeding profusely from his wounds. Brandon Lee's mother gave a heartfelt victim impact statement. She was just months into a 14-year sentence for manslaughter when she was delivered the devastating news that her son had been murdered. So a bit of an aside, but just to give you the facts about Mrs. Lee, she reportedly subjected her partner, Mr. Taylor, and other previous partners to serious acts of domestic violence. And following a drunken row on March the 31st, 2019, she armed herself with a knife, repeatedly threatened to kill Mr. Taylor, and finally plunged a knife through his heart. She tried to say that he'd stabbed himself, but this was rejected. However, the murder charge was cleared and she was convicted of manslaughter. So it's maybe a case to have a look at if anybody's interested in her but I just wanted to kind of give the facts of her court case so she was only months into her 14 year sentence when she was told and she basically said her world fell away when she heard of her son's death she said no words can describe how I'm feeling Brandon was my life we had our differences but we were very close he told me everything 
His older brother, who has served multiple tours for his country, is really struggling with the loss of his brother in such a horrific way. Brandon has a three-year-old daughter who will grow up without a dad in her life. He will never see her first day at school, share birthdays or Christmases. He will never see her get married or have children. The person responsible was meant to be his friend and he killed him in a cruel, brutal and callous way. The injuries can never be justified. It is destroying me knowing that his last breath on earth was in pain. He must have been so scared, in so much pain, and I wasn't there to protect him. That That's gut-wrenching, isn't it? Isn't it horrible? I think the family's kind of statements are always so... They just affect you so much, don't they? Yeah, we. Fe- I know we featured quite a few in recent episodes, and... Yeah, when they're, they're obviously writing from the heart in such gut-wrenching circumstances, so it really pulls you in. And, um, yeah, I, you know, can't even begin to imagine what, what she was going through at that time and what she'll continue to go through. And the fact that she's clearly not a nice person and in prison for manslaughter and was abusive to, to partners in previous relationships doesn't really have any bearing on it she's still a human being she's lost a son and she's feeling that pain as much as any other mother would feel it yeah and I did wonder I, I wondered if she was allowed to go to his funeral or anything because would she be able to was she is that something that she was able to do I wondered kind of what what she got how she was able to grieve because yeah, yeah. what she's done is by the by this is a completely separate thing and it's interesting isn't it again it's one of those things where you just realize that life isn't black and white and is this this would have been during covid as yeah well, wouldn't it 2020 so we'd have been in various states of lockdown i think in may wasn't it that mm-hmm. um that the murder happened so we w- we weren't in a lockdown then but we weren't far out of it there may still have been lots of rules around funerals and how many people can attend that continued for some time so and it varies from prison to prison really in terms of whether day release will be given to attend uh, a close relative's funeral so she may not have had the opportunity to attend which w- is incredibly sad regardless of the crime she's committed and you could argue that her freedom has been taken away from her for a, a valid reason but I think everybody should have the right to attend their own son's funeral maybe she did but she she might might have had that that right taken away from her which is sad if that happened or even just having to attend in handcuffs, chaperoned by members of the prison service, things like that. Well, that you know? I, have no, I have no sympathy with her for that. I just feel like you wouldn't necessarily be able to mourn in the same way. However, is that mm. not fair enough because you've made a decision that's now got you to this? I don't know, but yeah. The, thi- the thing is, though, I mean, I've seen Bad Girls, Bethan, the old ITV drama, and, you know, these women really pull together in prison. So oh, okay, maybe well, that's all right then. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a you know very Bad accurate girls, portrayal such a of, of women's watch. life in prison. Yeah, so I loved that show. Absolutely uh, love Bad Girls. Good boy, well done. Thanks, I'm babes. Glad you love it. I do. <laughs> so back to the case that we're actually talking about, rather than fictional cases. Detective Sergeant Ewan Campbell of Northumbria's Police Homicide and Major Inquiries Team said this was a brutal killing, which has sadly resulted in Brandon's death. Our thoughts go out to his family at this awful time and I would like to thank everyone involved in this case from the witnesses who gave evidence to the detectives who spent hundreds of hours poring over CCTV footage and today I hope this conviction can bring some comfort to Brandon's family. We are committed to bringing violent offenders to justice and Miller is clearly a dangerous individual who inflicted horrific injuries to Brandon during a prolonged and vicious attack. He now begins his life sentence behind bars. And the 
the feeling and the emotion I got from reporting on this case was it it was almost like not as much of a shock about Ross and it's still horrific and people are still shocked by the situation but almost like he was just so horrible but it was Gary that kept on being referred to and I just felt really sad people were kind of like well Ross gets what he deserves because he did this and he was a horrible person who did this and he did that and it went way further this time but Gary just seemed like such a lovely guy and people would always kind of talk about him so for him to be cleared and to have that now take you know weight off his shoulders must be wonderful I part of me feels like Gary is is better off with Ross in prison because Gary's this good guy. Ross is the complete opposite. Uh, how how long would it have been before uh, Gary got dragged into Ross's shenanigans again? Shenanigans. And maybe wasn't so lucky. Well, sorry, I mean that really does it disservice. But you know I what know I mean. What you could mean been, though the shenanigans could have been some just, other like, fighting and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, just like this this chaotic lifestyle. And and Gary was on the periphery of it. He was still friends with his brother, socialized with him, went round his house regularly. So it could be that that Gary got dragged into something unwillingly and wasn't so lucky next time and and got found guilty for something he didn't commit or got dragged into something and 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 thought he was helping his brother out. And before he knew it, he he had broken the law himself and faced facing the consequences. So I think he's probably better off with Gary, uh, sorry, with Ross inside. So then our second case for this week. So this was recommended by Lauren West for a very good reason. And I have purposefully hidden the rest of this script from you, Mark. So listeners, you can hear his reaction as genuine. So do not open the other file until okay. we get to a point where I tell you you can so we begin with the trial and sentencing of Aidan Wiltshire, a man in his 70s who, in 2017, was convicted of stalking in 2014 and 15. After meeting solicitor Alison Gowman and church minister Carol Irwin at a Methodist church in London, he bombarded them with letters and phone calls. So the schizophrenia sufferer was living as a woman and calling himself Anne in 2014 and 2015 when he stalked the two women. And for the benefit of the court... He was on trial as Aidan Wiltshire and he, as he was living at that moment, but during 2014 and 15, the judge described him as being transgendered and Ms Galman and Ms Irwin both referred to him as she and Anne during the court proceedings because that's how he was presenting himself at that time. Does that make any sense? So the pair described how they'd been bombarded with phone calls, letters and some direct contact and that Anne had refused to be warned off despite a police harassment order being issued. Alison said Anne sent her numerous letters to her work, made persistent calls to her home and office, and she told the jury that she felt beleaguered and harassed from when it began in 2013 until it ended in April 2015. She said she felt vulnerable and controlled, and it had affected her ability to operate as a person and a solicitor because it was constantly in the back of her mind. Church Minister Carroll Um, So basically, she was a minister at a church where Anne attended, told the jury she was warned about Wiltshire's intensity by other clergy. And over 18 to 24 months, she received three or four letters a week from Anne and felt that her mobile phone became toxic. Anne's behaviour was intolerable and persistent. Carol felt hounded by her and was apprehensive about attending church. So... Aidan Wiltshire's legal counsel called for an absolute discharge, saying that Wiltshire has no wish to be treated for mental health issues, but the judge refused this. Medical evidence didn't support um, the imposition of a hospital order, and the judge said that he didn't think that the absolute discharge would mark the gravity of what 
Aidan Wiltshire had done. So instead, he handed him an 18-month supervision order. And he kind of commented that it was quite ironic. Because Wiltshire was unfit to plead, the court couldn't impose any restraining order. But equally, a hospital order couldn't be supported either. So it was quite ironic the way it had kind of fallen out. So he or she as... She would have been at the time, I'm guessing. So she was like Anne in 2014, 2015. So Anne didn't have a restraining order sort of stopping her contacting Alison and Carol. Is that right? There was no... Well, there was no official restraining order back then, but there were police um, warnings, like warning her off and she didn't listen to them. So that's, I guess, why it then came to trial because they tried to deal with this... um, outside of court and she just wouldn't listen so between those two years was when the stalking campaign really happened and so now it's this is then a few years later but it's kind of finally in in court this is 2017 and it's Aidan then at this point who's on trial for what he did when he was Anne but there was no restraining order put on at this time because they couldn't do that because of his mental health problems so it was all very very messy Um, And the judge said Wiltshire was mentally unwell, told him, you cut an isolated and vulnerable figure, you have significant cognitive impairment and problems of thought disorder, you appear to have struggled with issues of gender identity and you may be suffering paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar affective disorder. So it is a really, really sad tale for the two women who were stalked and this rather sad figure of a pensioner painted by the judge. And this is, so, so what's going to be lighthearted about this? Can you Fuck guess? Knows. Who do no, you think he had in the dock with him for his support? It's got to be a celebrity. It's not. A dog. It's a dog. If you'd like to open... A cat. Open your other file. Okay. <laughs> I'm loading it up, guys. Let's have a look. Here we go. Oh, my God, it's his cat. His cat Fucking called hell. Taylor. How, why was this allowed? So he would stroke the pet during the hearings to help him stay calm. Sometimes the cat was draped around his neck. Sometimes it stayed oh, in its basket. I can see it. Basket. It makes me feel sick. Sometimes it stayed in its shopping trolley. Wiltshire would bring the cat in and the cat would poke his head out for a fuss. <laughs> he arrived at Chelmsford Crown Court for his sentencing with the black cat, <laughs> Taylor, perched on his shoulder. And he was given special permission to have his cat with him and to sit down during the sentencing which is, you know, you normally have to stand for the sentencing, but this is a 70-year-old guy. Um, And the pensioner's cat sat on his lap throughout. He brought the cat back out with him in a small carry trolley after the judge said he wasn't going to prison. (laughs) And the court heard that Wiltshire relied on the cat for emotional support and he was granted permission to bring it with him. His defence said that he used the cat as an emotional crutch and defence added, Mr. Wiltshire is someone who suffers with health issues and is emotionally supported by his cat. It is a crutch which he relies on. It's in a basket and not roaming free. I appreciate it sounds somewhat odd, but there's documentary ev- evidence that the cat does provide emotional support for the defendant to cope. And Carol said that when um, Aidan Wiltshire was Anne, she used to bring Taylor the cat to church. I... um. I mean, I'm I, I'm not really sure what to say. I do understand that for some people, I totally get it. Pets, cats, dogs, etc., can can be a huge source of emotional support. I'm not sure he he as a defendant should have had the right to have a cat with him as he 
was in court. And the reason this is sort of like funny for me is because once I took some really strong <laughs> painkillers and then we recorded an episode and I can't remember the intricacies of it, but I then started imagining a cat giving evidence in so the dark. the previous episode, if anybody wants to listen to it or I can't remember when it was, but it's Big Dave and Little Dave and it was two guys. Oh, yeah. And basically they used evidence from a cat in court and it was the first time that dna evidence from a cat was this used and it was ridiculous. incredible and mark because he was silly sausage high as a kite high as fuck um i thought that the cat was stood up that in i the meant dock. that the cat was in the dock giving evidence <laughs> and it's been an ongoing joke on our social medias now people send in photos of photoshopped <laughs> cats in docks or all sorts and basically yeah um this was mentioned so this was mentioned for us basically because of that so lauren west was like you need to tell mark about this case. lauren is bang on lauren this is, is like on. so the case and so i felt like it, it was a little bit lighthearted because obviously what aiden did well what Anne did was not appropriate and awful however aiden's now been sentenced fine um but the cat just really cracked me up and the pictures of aiden walking around with this cat on his shoulder glaring at the media because he's angry that they've followed him and they've taken pictures of him and his cat and the cat's just sat there just looking around like yeah my cat i don't know it's horrible horrible looking cat it's a horrible looking cat it's a nice Um, cat it's just a black cat mark what's your problem with the cat you have got to get these photos on all of our social medias all of these photos of him with that cat sat on his fucking neck it looks ridiculous I'm a bit jealous that none of my cats would let me carry them around on my neck. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, there we go. Thanks, Bethan. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what to say. Um, I don't even, I can't remember if you've got found guilty or not. I'm just preoccupied by this cat now. Well, there we go, guys. We'll, um, we'll leave it there and we'll see you all next week. Yeah, we'll see you then. Bye. Take care. Bye. <laughs>